Well, good day, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of One Small Step. Uh, my goodness, I am so excited. I don't know what to do with myself. Uh, this week's episode is really, really special for us. So um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a, a day at S2P Consulting exploring Cooper, uh, presenting some of its features and doing some workshops to some prospective clients and partners. Uh, incredible day. And um, what made the day really special for us was it culminated in a a Q&A, a live Q&A with, uh, with the Cooper CEO, Rob Bernstein, all the way from the States, from Silicon Valley. Uh, so we got him for an hour and a half. Uh, I fired off some questions and some other people fired off some questions and I'd love to share that day with you. And this is exactly what we're gonna do right now. So sit back, relax and enjoy the Q&A with Rob Bernstein, CEO of Cooper. Uh, the, the purpose of today really is just to have a, a Q&A with Rob. Uh, maybe just get inside your head. Um, be wonderful to hear your thoughts on a whole bunch of things and so I'll, I'll kick off with a couple of questions but please feel free there's a microphone uh, with the two microphones around and so if you have a question please feel free to ask at any time so Rob um, just by way of introduction if you don't mind if you could just share with us maybe some of your personal and your professional journey we'd love to hear a bit about that sure happy to and, and thank you for, for hosting us and hosting me uh, personally um, I've spent my entire career in enterprise software. I started uh, as a programmer after my uh, undergraduate uh, in New York, um, programming in COBOL and C and uh, a number of other languages, and uh, got excited about information technology because I, now even 25 years later, realized just how much opportunity there is in helping companies optimize their business processes with, with information technology, just how unoptimized virtually every business process is an organization, how much paper there is, how much uh, lack of efficiency there is with, with business process. So I decided to uh, commit my career to that uh, back in the early 90s. And since, created sort of my own ap apprenticeship through, through the enterprise software world. First uh, as a programmer, as I mentioned, then writing tech specs, functional specs, and then beginning to implement uh, more packaged uh, solutions of enterprise software, starting initially with with SAP R2 and then R3, financials, cost accounting, materials management, production planning, and very quickly uh, realized I had a pretty good knack for, te for technology, also a little bit for leadership, and so managed some, some large-scale global SAP deployments. And what I came to realize pretty quickly is that while we were adding a lot of value, there was a lot of inefficiency in that process in and of itself. Uh, the customer was spending a great deal on software, uh, they were also spending a great deal on consultants for the implementation of the software, and they weren't always getting a lot of meaningful, clear value in a, in a short period of time. So I decided that uh, I want to make my way over to, to Silicon Valley to be part of the solution to that problem um, uh, and try to make an impact at a larger scale uh, than sort of one customer at a time, get close to the code. And having made that decision, I thought getting an MBA would be a good path. So I wound up, I was lucky enough to I got accepted to, to Harvard Business School, completed my MBA there, uh, did some internships in management consulting, investment banking, to get a sense of the kind of landscape beyond the IT industry. And then uh, in 2001, when things weren't exactly working out in Silicon Valley and we had a dot-com kind of bust, people were leaving, but I decided to, to go out there and uh, moved closer from the services side to the product side, joining Siebel Systems, which is now part of Oracle, uh, in the CRM space. Having done ERP, I thought CRM would be an interesting area to delve into, and ran products for a couple of new product lines within Siebel that we grew 
very rapidly actually. And at that time I saw this model of as a service begin, just beginning to develop, particularly with Salesforce.com, who were starting to really beat up on us at, at Siebel by delivering simple use cases like, you know, Salesforce automation or call center, some things of that nature, but delivered in an ASP model or on-demand model. I thought this, is, this could be very powerful if you pick off the right use cases, and it could be a good way to create alignment between the, the software vendor and the customer because you pay on an as-you-go basis, and you're sort of forced to distill uh, use cases down to ways that are repeatable versus doing a lot of custom, non-repeatable work that, that has been very difficult in enterprise software. So joined a couple of folks that were incubating company out of uh, one of the venture offices, Greylock, focused on um, on-demand software for the HR space, a third, third space. And we built that company up over the course of five and a half or so years uh, from a from few you know, handfuls of people to, to a public company uh, that really became a leader in the, in the human capital management, performance management space with software delivered on-demand. And at that point, you know, I thought, well, where else can you take this model and make an even bigger impact, you know? And I thought there's really one, only one more area left. I mean, you, you focus on financials, you focus on CRM, you focus on HCM. The supply chain area or spend management area seemed very ripe because the, the offerings, though they were quite good for their time and they were, they were built at a time when people didn't have anything really, you could take it to the next level. Um, I thought the opportunity was there to take it to the next level. And so we started building a company uh, in, in 2009, again, a very difficult time. Uh, well, I think a good time to start to build companies, actually. Um, choosing the most modern technology platforms we could figure out and focusing in on things that we think we could be really strong in, which I'll tell you more about, hopefully. And over the last 10 years, we've been building up the company. We're in it 39 quarters, uh, you know, well over 1,000 people around the world now big, large multinationals, mid-market companies deploying us, a continuing expansion of our footprint. Uh, not easy, but very rewarding. Uh, very strong renewal base, a lot of measured growth, and, uh, and uh, we're excited about what's to come. We're, we've been public now for a couple of years as well, which is, which is nice. So an exciting time to continue to develop not only my career, but my, my aspiration to, to try to make the biggest impact possible in, in this this enterprise software category, this enterprise software world. That's, that's my story. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. I think the, the, the natural next question is, uh, I've read that you're quite into Dr. Dre, <laughs> the Wu-Tang Clan. Not only because of the music, but, but you said that you like the way they do things and, yeah. and do business, which is quite, a, quite an interesting thing to read. Any other left field uh, places you, you draw inspiration from? Well, we could drill in on that one for a moment. I mean, if you, if you think about in the late 80s that a couple of guys out of Long Beach Compton were gonna sell their company to Apple for billions of dollars with Beats by Dre, for example, you would, you would lose a bet to anybody, right? You're coming off this. So what I like about this, there's, there's a lot of hustle there. I mean, not, I don't mean hustle in a negative way, I mean hustle in a very positive way, working harder than the next guy, coming out and doing things that are more creative than the next guy, uh, making an impact that's felt through your creativity and hard work. So that for me is very aspirational. Um, maybe if you take a look at the times, you know, maybe you've heard in, in, in the United States, obviously comic books were a very big thing in the late uh, 30s, 40s, 50s. And uh, one of the, the original drawers and writers of comic book, Stan Lee, 
died uh, just the other day, I think at 95 years old. I've always drawn a lot of inspiration from action heroes that, that these people came up with. Because I don't know about all of you, but you know, we've had people in our lives that obviously at one time or another have let us down. So I'm not so big on aspiring to be like somebody else, human. But being as, but aspiring to 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 you know to to doing things that haven't been done before the way obviously, you know, action figures and and uh, you know superheroes uh, are for us. Uh, that, that's very aspirational too. Brilliant. So those are the two areas. So when I when I kicked off this morning, I was saying that when we grow up, there's this I think as boys, we're uh, we either want to be Superman or Batman. You know, Superman's fast and strong, and Batman's cool and rich and got a lot of gadgets and I said uh, we think Cooper is a combination of the two. It's got everything. Yeah. Very cool. Interesting that you went the superhero route. <laughs> any, uh, any cool books you're reading at the moment? Uh, you know I like to read uh, books around spirituality. I like that probably a lot more because it gives you a chance to reflect a little bit on things. So um, and a lot of older books like for example I just finished uh, Grist for the Mill by uh, Ram Das. If anyone's ever heard of that I I'd recommend it. Very very good book. Um, but the, the t typical books on business and whatnot, I, I tend not to read that so much anymore because I think there's only a point in time that's a point in time. So whatever someone experienced before, we're not necessarily experiencing the exact same thing at this point sure. in time. You know, we, interestingly enough, we hire people who come in and say, well, you know, the way I did it at X company or Y company or Z company, that's good. You know, we're interested in your experience that, but you weren't at Coupa in 2018, you know, on November, whatever it is, dealing with this situation. So. Mm -hmm. Be, bring that experience, but also bring your beginner's mind, right? And, you know, after a certain level of investment in education and learning, whatever, you, there's a point at which you want to say, you know what, I'm going to kind of go with my own instincts, gut, and my own perception. So I do less reading of those types of books nowadays. Although I will read the book you gave me, so I have a very long <laughs> flight back, so we'll be looking at that. I've got 26 hours. <laughs> You just swap it out before you leave. <laughs> um, any learnings on uh, along your leadership journey that you can share with us? Well, I'll tell you one learning that I think is very important. It's, it's serving us well at Coupa, um, and I, I wrote you know this book, Values of Service, and dedicated a whole chapter to it. Which is, I think, the way things worked in these first you know, revolutions. We're talking about fourth industrial revolution, not whatever, but, you know, industrial revolution, let's just call it that, when you were, you know, instead of hand by hand people doing things, we put things on an assembly line. Let's put it, <laughs> simplify the notion, right? There you needed a top-down organizational leadership structure where, you know, the, the, the boss and then the foreman and then the line and then all of that. I think we're in, a, obviously, in an in information revolution or even a knowledge revolution today where one programmer or one highly creative individual, one area of a company can make a massively outsized impact on the company as a whole. So we have this concept of an upside down org chart of the company. Very simple concept, uh, but not necessarily easy in practice. So when we say, you know, I, I support this person. So the people on my team, I don't say my directs, I say I'm supporting this person and that person's supporting that person. And we're constantly trying to find what are the strengths on one of the on, on the teams of people we support that we can leverage, that we can put more energy on, that we can drive more energy toward, and what are the weaknesses we can help them shore up, or what are the blind spots they might have that we just bring to let them know about so that they're aware about it. So we never attack the person, we 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 more break out their strengths, weaknesses, and help them cultivate their strengths. 
And I think it's a mindset shift. And if you can make it happen organizationally, it can help you drive your culture. And for us, it's been, it's, been, it's been very powerful. Now, we also prune the tree sometimes. You know, once a year, we shuffle. We, we look for places where people are, are maybe exerting a lot of energy, but they're not growing. But we also send a lot of energy to those that are, or as much as we can, within, within our reasonable constraints. So for me, that's, um, it's a powerful journey that we're on in trying to see if we can continue to scale that to well over 1,000, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people. You know, people told me at 150, it becomes harder, 200, 300. You know, I think we're doing it relatively well at over, well over 1,000 now. So for me, that's, that's encouraging, it's exciting. Tommy, do you, do you or your team set aside any time to cast vision in, in your organization? And if so, what does that look like? It's actually very, very simple. I don't believe in very measured meetings where once a week or once a month or once or whatever it is because I think people get into a certain cadence and that puts them to sleep. So I like to have it very differently, very, very organically. So I'll have a meeting with the people that I support on my team uh, somewhere between once a month, once every six uh, weeks. And the tradition that we've had for the last, whatever it is, seven years is the only thing you have to bring to that meeting is your top three focus areas. What are the top three results you're attempting to achieve between now and whatever it is the next time we meet? And everyone shares those top three and we talk about ways we can help each other achieve them. That's it. Very simple. Now we have metrics. We have all of that. It's not, it's not loosey-goosey kind of. We know all the metrics for every function. But the conversation is purely on what are the three results you're attempting to achieve and how do we un help you realize them? That's okay. Anyone else? I'm talking a lot. No, I'd love to ask you a question. Can you, sorry, can I, could you grab the mic, please? Yeah. Cheers. Uh, Fantastic. Thanks, Rob. Um, so, you know, South Africa uh, uh, has the opportunity for often lagging behind in adoption of technology. And in other cases, it can leapfrog uh, uh, what's happened elsewhere and actually, like, uh, get ahead of the game in some instances. Um, now, um, your traditional enterprise architecture on-premise type uh, technologies um, is what you might experience in the enterprise. Um, the adoption of cloud is uh, something that everyone's looking at and uh, I think uh, uh, what you've developed is a, is a very uh, um, innovative and progressive solution uh, in the procure-to-pay space. Um, now, <clears throat> we don't experience the benefits of like online shopping through Amazon, perhaps what you have now uh, integrated into your daily life. But you look at what's happened uh, with the, the new two big uh, uh, um, head offices, I think, being rolled out by Amazon in the States. And you start to understand the dominance that's occurring in like, the, the consumer space for uh, uh, online shopping. The question is, is, where is the convergence between enterprise procurement uh, and almost like your consumer procurement? And how is uh, uh, Amazon, with its massive code base, and capability going to meet you at a point where they're offering something that can blur the line between enterprise and consumer. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of talks to the, the question of direct versus indirect. Maybe it's related, perhaps you can elaborate. Well, first let me say that with Amazon specifically, they're, they are, uh, we're primarily hosted on Amazon Web Services, that's number one. Secondly, they're a customer of ours, they run um, nearly 25 billion through our platform. So every box and label and sticker, every, every, everything that they purchase goes, goes through Coupa. 
And we have a partnership with Amazon Business as well as Amazon AWS. With AWS, the partnership is if IT organizations want to procure Coupa for their organization, they can pull it off of the Amazon Web Services Marketplace and procure it for their organizations. So we actually made it easier for CIOs and others to do that. And that typically happens in mid, you know, smaller companies, but that's a developing marketplace for them. The additional and the last area we partner is with Amazon Business. So a lot of procurement professionals around the world go to negotiate deals, obviously, with the vast majority of where the spend is happening. They leave a lot of the long tail, and certainly the longest portion of that long tail, completely sort of willy-nilly. If they have that situation, we can default them out to Amazon Business, which will appear in the search results when you're, when you're searching through Coupa. So we have a very good tight relationship with them. Having said that, we have a very synergistic relationship as well. They are not their core competency and their focus area and their vision area is not core enterprise software, right? They're not competing with Oracle and SAP and others on the business logic layer of the enterprise. Business logic layer of the enterprise is, is complicated, as many of us know here, right? Complicated workflow, complicated taxonomies, category management, visibility, integration to existing financial systems, uh, active directory. You, I mean, there's so much there, right? There's so much complexity there. So, um, so for us, it's a very synergistic uh, relationship, and I think it meets well as well because, look, they continue to bring um, the commoditized components of categories to the market. Why not let that be an option, right? And we have customers that turn it on, uh, Amazon um, uh, for business, Amazon business within Coupa, and actually allow end users to choose. You know, you're searching for some item, laptop, whatever it may be. It'll come up from Amazon. It'll come up with your preferred. It'll come up with, we want to work with this supplier because they are green or they're supporting our local requirements around diversity or whatever it may be. And procurement can easily hot swap what appears for the end user, but the experience continues to be very simple, intuitive. And we solve the business problem, the complex problem of helping companies manage their business spending. So they're not in that world. Amazon's not in that world. They're, they're offering you goods and services, then they're, they're not helping you solve that problem. So it's a very synergistic relationship and we tend to learn from each other as well. We, we've been to their uh, machine learning center uh, in uh, Palo Alto. We leveraged the Lex operating system for a couple of things within our, our platform. So it's, it's very synergistic. Yeah, Rob, thanks, thanks for that. Um, I mean, for me, the vision of Cooper, where do you see Cooper in the next five, 10 years? I know you speak about employee growth, 1,000, 10,000, 20,000. Um, maybe just describe the market size, as you mentioned earlier on, and what, what, you, what you envisage to capture in the next five to 10 years. That's one question. The second one is, what keeps you awake at night regarding your current business and your current business model right now? Well, it's a very difficult question to say, what do you envision in the next five years? There's so many dimensions to the business. As you said, rightfully, it's internal operational growth. So people all over the world carefully, organically growing. It's external customer adoption, mid-market, enterprise, more products, more services, more global, uh, global um, penetration. Um, so that's, that's a layer. Then there's a product layer. You know, what are the other capabilities we want to build out? What are the other capabilities we're considering to buy? So we have this comprehensive know, business spend management platform. There's a financial element to it, right? What kinds of investors do you want to keep bringing in as we grow from, you know, you know, what we were initially valued at $15 million to 3,300, 300, 880, now nearly $4 billion. So, so there's that element of it. How we navigate through the, through the macroeconomic scenario, which is very hard for anybody to predict. Um, so everything we do is mitigate risk 
and optimize our uh, chances to penetrate this massive market. And one of the criticisms I actually get sometimes is from investors and others, well, why don't you put a great deal more sales and marketing into this? Because, because it's very clear. I mean, we have a model for 39 quarters that says, you know, if you put in this much into these areas, you can get this much. But we want to be very thoughtful, we want to be very careful. Not that we're not up for growth. We want to be thoughtful and careful because we think this move to values of service, software service, a once in a lifetime move. I was sharing earlier this example of, again, in the, take your, your thoughts about consumer, right? We went from very different form factors in music. I always use music as the great example, from the record to the eight track to the cassette to the DVD to even Apple 99 cents per song, which still is, has a product element to it. I'm paying for the song to Spotify or Pandora. It's music as a service, experience as a service. Now, if Spotify serves me well, serves us well, they're a customer too, by the way, I should never be switching from there, right? They should be offering me an experience. They should be offering me that ambiance. When I come home, that music should begin playing. When I'm interacting with these people, that means all the, the, the whole service element will be delivered to me. I mean, anything that can be converted to zeros and ones and digitized is an as a service. It's just a matter of time. It's very clear. So we want to be very careful with that. And that's why our, we're very proud of the fact our renewal rate's exceptional, right? Our continued expansion is exceptional, I mean, over 110% renewal rate, right? Um, so that's how I think about the business. Uh, and we've also shored ourselves up for tough situations should they come, right? We have more than $400 million in the bank. We have a very strong investor base. We have a strong customer base. Um, so that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is what keeps you up at night, kind of what you were saying is uh, scaling the culture. What we began to talk about, scaling the culture, because this is not, to be honest, and we share this all the time, none of what we're doing is rocket science. It's just hard work, passion, integrity with customers, you know, not the old 90s way of PowerPoint and demos and then you, you know, good luck but really work to ensure that you're getting value out of the relationship uh, together. And that takes a very different mindset, a very different approach, different hiring practices, different reward practices, different level of compensation and meritocracy and, and all kinds of things. That's, that's what I worry about the most. That's why also I don't want to go much faster than maybe some, some would, su would suggest we should. Can I just ask one question for clarity and I'm going to hand over the mic to someone else. On the on the, currently, Cooper is playing in the spend management space. I mean, that's, that's where you're really good at. Do you envisage that you play in the finance space, you play in the uh, different space that comes later? Uh, how are you evolving? Uh, is this where you want to play in and really do an exceptional job and create massive customer experience and exposure? Yeah, we don't have any plans to get into financials. Um, simply because, look, if you're a company, you have to focus on your core competencies, right? And you have to look at a marketplace and see what's really wrong with the market. I don't really see a lot of big, complex, multinational ERP financial systems that need to be replaced at this moment. What they need to be, what, they, what needs to happen to them is there needs to be strategic extensions to those. We need to go up the stack where the action is actually happening. The reconciliation back down to a GL and the chart of accounts is easy. The action is in the purchasing, in the expensing, in the invoicing, in the payments, in the sourcing, in the supplier risk management, in, the, in, the, in, in all of the ways that companies actually spend money. 
And by the way, yes, we need to close our books, great. So the value, we're pulling value up. We're giving, up, we're giving companies who have invested in SAP and Oracle and other, uh, and other core ERP platforms the chance to reap a lot of value out of that massive investment. And that's a big space. It's a big space. Now, it's, it's not a, we're not in demand fulfillment mode. I don't want to mislead you. It's not like we're sitting here taking orders all day long, just signing, I mean, we get it. It's hard work. But we're going into a space that is poorly served. We're standing on the shoulders of early entrants, like Ariba and Commerce One and all these other players, taking it to the next level, and then actually delivering a value that really hasn't been seen before. I mean, we have now 70 or something customers that are holding up signs talking about 70, billion, 70 million saved, 35 million saved. That, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen unless you're doing something special. So, so we, this is the area we define, we call business spend management, which I think spend management is too, too simplistic. Yeah, that could be consumer too. You know, we manage money at home, that's spend management. We're talking about business, business goods and services and for the benefit of the business. When you look at an income statement, which by the way, procurement people unfortunately are not doing enough, in my opinion. They're not doing it enough. We just hired a CPO at Coupa. It's the first conversation. Did you look at our income statement? So we've done so much to apply information technology to drive revenue, selling, marketing, servicing. Okay. Now what's going on on the, on the, on the expense side? Okay. We have our people. I don't even see that as an expense. I see that as an asset. Your people are your assets. So you shouldn't even be thinking about it as an expense. But then you have everything else. That everything else, the goods and services and temp labor and everything, is so ripe for operational efficiency improvement and so ripe for profitability, bottom line improvement. What we're seeing now on earnings calls, right, in the investor conversations of some of our customers, we saw Rolls-Royce, Aeons, Cornerstone, others, calling out their deployment of Coupa as a driver for greater profitability. That's pretty rewarding. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking, oh, is it this big a space, this big a space? We can build a space here too because it's being, the problem is not being solved yet effectively, right? Rob, this is, this is very interesting. Um, two questions for me. Why the name Cooper? Um, maybe th there's magic in it um, somehow. Um, the second question is, um, wh what has been the uptake um, from the public service or the public sector? on Cooper, um, and if there are any, any, any problems that you've experienced, what are those? <laughs> what, sure, what, what? so first the name, so w what we've, the way we framed it is each letter in, in Cooper stands for something, and it's a vision area for us, and I'll actually build upon the question you asked, so the C being comprehensive, meaning let's give every pot, uh, let's help our customers get their arms around every possible area of spend and give them tools to to improve the way they spend in that area, right? So the way you think of it simply is, we want to help our customers know more about those that they're buying from, the suppliers they're buying from, than the suppliers know about them. There's so many tools being used to sell into us. What about us knowing more about them? So, so that's comprehensive. And then there's more things we need to build, and in some cases buy, to build out the full, foot, full, print, full footprint of what we think is required there. So that's one visionary. The O is open, and that means open in spirit, in dialogue, in authenticity, in conversation, but also means open in terms of being in, able to interface to any systems and have third-party software providers connect into us through Coupa Link and other programs. That's, that's Third is usability, user centricity, you, and that is just making these tools so intuitive so that they're even, I mean, 
we aspire that it's even more usable than Amazon. That you don't, I mean, you don't have advertising on the screen, for example. We, we have more real estate to make this better, right? There's a lot more things we could do there. P, which is the most powerful one, and one that, that, is, that is going to serve us very, very well in coming years, and that's prescriptive. So using the data from all of our customers, the community data around now nearly a trillion dollars in spend, to help companies optimize the way they spend. So tell you, hey, people are having trouble with that supplier. We suggest this one instead. People are liking that supplier. Why? And all the data. And A, for accelerated. So speed of deployments. You know, we're averaging four months for mid-market, and mid-market is a company's a billion and below, and eight months for companies you know, above a billion in revenue. So, so those, are, those are the areas and what it stands for. In terms, of, um, in terms of public sector, we specifically shied away from public sector for a long time because it's even harder than commercial and the level of bureaucracy that you face is extreme. Uh, I think we know this. This is not, this is universal, <laughs> okay? That's, that's where the, the greatest pain is. It's the, where the greatest pain is. It's also where the greatest hurdle to entry is, right? So now that we've gotten to a certain level of critical mass, we're public, we're stable, we're secure, we're, we could start making some money. So we've made some early investments there. They have not yet reaped rewards. I mentioned it very clearly on our earnings call. We have nothing to hide. But we do have a very strong pipeline now I would say mid to late stage pipeline of some very, very large federal agencies and others that are considering leveraging our platform. So I hope to be able to break through there. But it's, uh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And when they do all happen, um, are you able to share those cases with us? Of course. I mean, we're, 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 we're as transparent as, unless the customer specifically tells us that we, yeah, of course, we want to. I mean, we want to. They should want to. Because the beauty of this model is very simple. We, we've been talking about it for years, but when that we're, with Cooper we're doing it, which is when one customer has a specific request that they're pondering, and they think it's very unique and specific to them, and they share that request within our community, both in our online community and in our customer advisory boards and in our interactions, there's a good chance someone else has something similar, and we could distill what within that can be encoded in an abstracted way we encode it, and then these customers begin to use these, these features. And we've seen very interesting use cases where something in healthcare is, is things like a healthcare problem, but when we encode it, the capability of it can be used in retail and you know, in, a, in the San, San Diego Zoo you know, to order cages and you know, mice and uh, linens for hospitals. And we've just seen it all across the board. So it's, it's our job as a technology company I mean, that's the secret of enterprise software. How can you encode something in a way that's most broadly applicable yet still have the configurability to make it appear like it's a custom system? That's the fun of this whole thing, right? Could I continue from that, uh, that, uh, that point? Uh, Is that on? Um, oh, yeah. So, um, and it's, it's perhaps connected to you, uh, like a deeply integrated value chain. Um, and if you look at those principles of open and prescriptive, and your comment there was related to um, identifying a, a problem with a supplier. Does that extend beyond the instance of your customer where you're looking at the data that is attributed to suppliers across your customers? And, and if so, are you leveraging that? How does that position you in that like? I really appreciate the question because no matter how many times I attempt to articulate this concept, it's rare that someone gets it on the first try, and you got it on the first try. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So your customer A, your customer B, your customer C. 
You don't know who you're spending with one another. But in total, we now have nearly a thousand all over the world, right? And it just so happens that whoever's delivering this is delivering it late and you're having disputes with them and the invoices are over what they should be. We're picking up that data and then sharing with all of you that you may consider other suppliers for this that are having less. So absolutely, it's leveraging community intelligence. All sanitized. First of all, data has to be normalized. Let's begin with that. You have to know that whatever this is, is the exact same place, right? So you have to normalize the data. So we use AI technology that normalizes the data. Some of this stuff, believe it or not, you have to run over and over and over to get to the point where you can have a clean supplier list. I'm just using that example. You have to sanitize that. For example, for components, some suppliers will actually name the customer in the component. So you work with an Airbus or someone, they'll say Airbus part, whatever. We have to sanitize. You can never expose that to a Boeing, though they're not our customer. But we never expose that, right? So all that has to be sanitized. And then it has to be offered up in a way that can be prescriptive. It's a prescription. You don't have to take the prescription. But we're just saying, you may consider these suppliers for these goods and services because the community is growing. And this is, this is, this is intelligence built upon a growing data set. Very powerful. Now you think about that. You just use suppliers. Think about that, what we're doing on the commodity level. Think about what we're doing there on expense reporting and fraud detection. If we see fraud, certain type of fraud of requisitions or invoices across millions of transactions happening weekly, we're more likely to prompt for you and your company to say, there's probably something going on with this human being because it matches the intelligence we're picking up across the community. So this is a very, very powerful concept. And it's not being done in enterprise software that I could see in CRM, HCM, or ERP. And our vision is to really be the tail that wags the dog, if you will, because we're obviously much smaller than, say, Salesforce or Workday or whatnot in, on this concept. We've had incredible interest and, and frankly, already uh, momentum with customers subscribing to the, some of these tools, like RiskAware, and now we just launched SpendGuard and other tools like that. I'm sitting here the whole day wondering, are you a rabbit? <laughs> I'm definitely a rabbit. I'm definitely a rabbit. That's another. That's another. That's operational community intelligence, right? So this. So this is very. I don't know if you're familiar with what we did here, but basically we said, okay, everywhere in the company there's some workflow. One of the problems with lack of operational efficiency is some people sit on things too long. I mean, they they have something they they sit on things too long, or in some cases they just kind of approve quickly, randomly without seeing. So what if we prompted them, we said, hey, compared to your peer group in your industry or company size or across the collective, you are more like a tortoise. You're slower, you're this standard deviation away, or you're more like a hare, you're faster. And we prompt that at the point of interaction on your mobile phone. Okay, I've been, right? And it's very similar to, I don't know if you have it here, but in the US we have, when you're driving too quickly, it'll just tell you, hey, you're driving, 95 miles an hour when it's 55. That in of itself slows you down, right? Um, versus a cop pulling you over necessarily, right? So you don't have to you know, audit everyone. You don't have to send emails pushing everyone. Maybe you just inform those on how they are against their peer group. I mean, that's how sociology works, right? And that's why men wear shirts. And, you, know, I mean, you know, we conform to our environment, but sometimes we don't have the data. So what if we bring that data to bear transactionally to help you adjust how you, how you how you engage with an enterprise software product. Um, um, another question from me quickly. Um, on, the, on, on risk management, um, I know there's quite a number of um, technologies that, 
that are proclaimed to do poverty, which is risk management. How is Cooper different from those technologies? What did you mention about property? Property is, is risk management. Okay, okay, in general. Um, so, so here's the, the, the idea around risk. I mean, typically, let's just take one use case of risk, so otherwise we can have a very long dialogue about risk. Let's say supplier risk, which is a more prominent one, okay? okay. So the, there are a lot of companies that are collecting a lot of data about suppliers to try to figure out whether or not they could pose risk to buyers. Very simply put, okay. What are the problems with the existing process? A, data might not be relevant or current. That's definitely a problem because you can't pull all this together. Um, the data might not be operationally related. It may be secondhand, in other words, through a survey, or through an interaction, or, right? Um, and the data might not be rich enough to provide a comprehensive picture. We're attempting to solve all three of those, okay? So one is, our data set is growing rapidly, right? So more and more suppliers, more and more interactions, we can hang more data off of each supplier. Secondly, the data is current because we're picking it up real time. And we had suppliers, we have customer who proactively swapped from one supplier to another because they saw that the new sentiment score on that given supplier they were working with was low. <coughs> How do we get that new sentiment score? Because we have open APIs that feed in data from third-party sources, the DNB and LexisNexis and Wat <coughs> IBM Watson and others to hang data off of each individual supplier, right? Um, so the data then is robust, the data is fresh, and the data is real time. And now what we're doing is we're giving customers the opportunity to calibrate that data. In other words, risk for you may be different than risk for someone else. For you, it may be that the price will go up. For someone else, it might be that they'll go out of business within a certain period of time. For someone else, it might be that they might not be able to ship on time to your location or deal with your volume requirements. So we allow you now to calibrate the areas of risk that are most concerning to you against these data feeds and open, so you could bring your own feed. There's not a lot of ways you can bring, you're already invested in DMB or whatever, bring your own feed, build out that platform, and then our analytics in Coupa will show you high risk, low risk, medium risk, will show it to you transactionally. You're about to transact with the supplier, and here is why we think you should consider these preferred because of the high risk in this area. So for sure, we want to be that central point. I mean, we want this to hang as much data off of each individual supplier record as possible to give you the biggest view on risk and give you as much control as possible to, 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 to sort of toggle between suppliers. And that's, that's where a lot of the power of this is. I mean, you could argue that's the, the exact parallel to CRM of SRM, right? I mean, the vision SAP had, right? but you understand in a very different technology architecture. Yeah, so Rob, thanks. The question I have is I mean, global companies have a big problem regarding sustainability. And I can look at my experience. We are sourcing quite a bit from China. And, and India, and we had policies regarding use of child labor and all the other issues. Yes, and, to, yes. and to audit that process is ex <coughs> extremely cumbersome and cost, cost a lot of money. How would, you, how would your system now assist or solve that problem for major multinationals to get deep into the supply chain? I know the issue of uh, you get data from supplies and you know the rating of the supply and all of that is fine. But is there more to what you, what you say? Well, there's two things. I mean, as a company, we don't go out and go seek specific suppliers in certain areas for you and tell you these are this, these are that. The community develops the supply base organically, and we watch the interactions with those suppliers, and then we can come back and tell you what we're seeing, right, in, in, in the application. What we also, what we do is we allow you in the application to 
choose what to present up to your end users for purchase. So if, again, if for you, sustainability is critical, right? You can, pr let's say a user goes in and selects something out of some older catalog or through Amazon business or whatever it is for a certain item or service and it's running through the workflow, we, can have, we have rules in there that if it's in that category and that price point or that line level, procurement dynamically gets inserted into the workflow. Procurement interjects and hot swaps that supplier or that from a different catalog area that you may be wanting to drive the organization toward. So everything is done dynamically in that way, but we don't build it out for you. We're not in the business. We're, we're not in the business of going seeking suppliers for you and you know, suggesting this or that because of some relationship we may have. What we do do on that area, which is also very which I think is quite powerful, because we have nearly a trillion dollars worth of aggregated buy side demand, we have the power to go to certain suppliers in key categories, largely commodity areas, and say, look, we want a better price. We want a certain level of agreement. We want to negotiate on behalf of this, this, this huge population we have. Um, you're probably going to give up a little bit on margin. We're probably going to get the best deal. You're not going to get that deal on your own. But what you're going to get is the likelihood of greater volume at a lower margin. And then you, what you could do is you could insert these preferred, this, this program is called Coop Advantage. You could insert these preferred suppliers right into the fold so that you know, when you look up an item that you're looking to buy or a service you're looking to buy, you could see the contracted price, you could see the Coop Advantage offering, you could see this and that, you could compare them side by side, make a selection and move forward. And uh, when we drive volume to those suppliers through Coop Advantage, the only thing we've done is we've negotiated that they drop somewhere between a penny and three pennies per transaction into a account, which is our uh, charity account. And we've, we're, uh, now a bit over a million something dollars that's been in there and all of that's been donated to, you know, we donate, every, you know, while I was traveling the last three days, we donated to the fires. You saw the email on that, right? Tens of thousands of fire to help people in fires in California. We donated to um, uh, American Cancer Society. I saw that flip in the last two days. So we're constantly willing to, to make charitable donations. And it's, 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 we just created value there. I mean, no one's losing there. No one's losing there at all. It's like the penny you leave in the, I don't know if you do that here, but in the grocery store, you have an extra penny, whatever. Same, same thing. With high volume, that builds up to great money, and, and then everyone can feel proud of what we're doing together, right? I mean, you know, initially 10,000, 20,000, no big deal. You get up to a million, and the scale we're growing, hopefully it'll be many millions, and then that's, that's legitimate. And we could all feel good about that, you know, as, as, a, as a Cooper community, right? Um, it, it, it was Jack Welch at, at GE's um, team, procurement team. That, that began to change the, the top line. I know you, you're talking more the expenses and all of that. I, is that not the second wave for Coopers? You mean revenue impact? Uh, yeah, you, using, using intelligence, uh, procurement intelligence, to either improve products, um, improve services that are given to, to companies. Well, look, it ought to be, um, it ought to be, look, I think one of the things about procurement that's very interesting, it's a very strange thing, but, it, but it's, I guess, understandable. If you say to procurement professionals, look, we're going to help use information technology, help your company save a lot of money, sometimes the reaction is, well, come on, we're more strategic than that. I mean, save money, that's, that's not a big, you know? But then the flip side is you come in and say, we're going to do something very strategic for you. We're going to help you manage supplier innovation and do all these amazing things. 
and they say, well, that all sounds great, but my CFO and everybody else wants to see how this is going to drive something here, right? So I don't think you can have one or the other. I mean, I think you have to pay the bills. The truth is, let's be real why procurement was put into companies, why the CFO and COO and CEO have the function. Uh, you know, you, you got to negotiate deals for us. You got to get us the right goods and services. We're going to run our company. That's why you're initially there. So you got to pay the bills. And in my opinion, and I've said it very candidly, there's a huge opportunity to get that baseline stuff done. It's not being done effectively today. But once that's done, we're seeing some of our customers go from this kind of baseline automation to sort of, you know, this maturity model we've developed and baseline automation to some transformation to what we call harmonizing or orchestrating. Then you could really get real. You could start talking about real supplier innovation. What are the things we could be procuring that could drive innovation in the product set? You know, working with Nike as an example. You look at the innovation they're doing in just sneak, who would have thought in sneakers you could do the kind of innovation that they're doing, right? I mean, you could drop a little coin in the bottom of a you know, Nike Plus sneaker now and have that connected to your phone. And that is keeping track of how many paces you ran, connected to your Fitbit and your calories, et cetera. Listen, innovation can come from anywhere in the organization. So if procurement came, came in with that idea, and that wasn't sourced at Nike by procurement, but procurement could have had the opportunity to bring that idea forth, it would have been amazing. But you gotta pay the bills first too. You gotta pay the bills first too. And we see a lot of procurement professionals, unfortunately, kind of teetering between, it's below me to worry about savings, and it's very cerebral to focus here, and then nothing happens. And that's a shame, that's a shame. And so the forward-thinking companies we've had that our customers, and I said, nearing a thousand, have found a way to balance that, right? Pay the bills and drive the, front, the, the innovative points. So we, we want to be the supporting platform for that type of thing, right? Um, Rob, just, just from my side, I was just listening to you, and I appreciate that you've got a very impressive set of um, blue-chip customers. And I just wondered, where, where are they pushing you to next? Or do you find uh, Cooper's kind of leading ahead of what the customers are asking you for? Um, is there an area that maybe surprised you to sort of say, well, you know, we've got all these services, we're building on it, we're bolting on the whole time, um, but our customers actually are asking us for this. And yeah. you know, what are we doing enough to get ahead of the game there? Yeah, so, um, so here's the thing that, and we touched on, we were talking about this a little bit before about the, the art of enterprise software. The art is finding, again, those use cases that are most broadly applicable. The ideas for what those use cases may be, in my view, if you want a collectively exhaustive way to look at it, can come from one of three directions. If you think about, we live in, you know, in a 3D world, so you have x-axis, y-axis, and z, okay? So the one axis that's most important, obviously, and you called on it, x, and that is your customers. Okay, what are your customers telling you? Your job is to distill that down. Okay, we're hearing a lot of things that they're saying and we're looking for patterns of commonality and of deploying that. That's a no-brainer, you have to do that. The y-axis is what's the market telling you. And by that I mean, you know, if we just did what the customer said, we would be the best e-procurement platform on earth. We would, but you know, more than 70% of our new revenue comes from products other than e-procurement now. We've never built expenses or invoice management or sourcing or inventory or I mean, a whole host of the things that, that we do, right? Cooper Pay, no one's asking us for this. So you look at ancillary areas that you could, that you could leverage your core competencies and expand the, the offering, right? And for that, we're getting paid fairly. Our, our recurring subscription revenue has grown virtually every quarter for 38 quarters. 
not because we're charging, you know, we're getting crazy about we're charging. We're fairly, we want it to be a fair relationship. So that's that axis. And then the Z dimension is just pure innovation. Neither the customer is asking for it, nor do you see it to your left or to your right. So if you're a cab driver, your customer will tell you, we want cleaner cars. And that would be a, that would be a customer-driven requirement for the taxi driver. And a market-driven requirement would be, we want you know, the water to be, you know, the fresh water to be there every time a person comes in, ancillary offerings. There'd be no Uber if you just listened to the customer in the market. So you have to look for innovations out there. Like I said, like Lex, like, like the ability to identify the fact that I'm sitting here in this specific point in South Africa, and if I open up my phone and I click on Uber, who's a customer of ours, or Lyft, who's a customer of ours, and find out immediately that you can come here and pick me up, $70 billion company emerges. So I think the key is, and those are the only three dimensions I could see, right? So we're constantly balancing those, and we try to balance all of those in every release and in every module, which is tough. So you always have a fight for what's gonna make it to the top. Now, in the customer one, I'm gonna tell you, because that's the, the key one. You, you wanna use this concept of the community, suggesting ideas, interacting, voting, rating things, and the things that bubble their way up to the surface, the ones that are more likely to need to be built. So, we're not so much trying to stay ahead of incumbent software players. We want to just figure out how to create a future that can solve these problems. And these three dimensions are the way we've been doing it. Uh, just with regards to economies of scale, the principle, is it uh, possible that the Cooper system can leverage with uh, users using the system by leveraging of, of um, a certain supplier by Obtaining a better price. What's the last thing you said I missed? Uh, suppliers actually getting a better price. Well, that's, that's the heart of where I was going with this, uh, this Coop Advantage program, right? Uh, so, well, so let's take the most, the, the, the most common one, as we all know, in the long tail is things like office supplies and all this stuff, right? <coughs> so the deals we've negotiated on behalf of our base of customers with the, the, the key office supplies providers, right, in key regions, are deals that I don't think any individual customer could negotiate on their own. And if you become a Coupa customer, you automatically get access to those contracts. Automatically. Now we're starting to go into vertical verticals, right? I mean, you know, as I understand it, most of the linens for hospital beds in the United States were procured through Coupa. So we can then go and negotiate with those providers, right? With understanding the different levels. You want Egyptian cotton, you want to, what, what levels? Negotiate those different rates. And then the minute you join onto Cooper, you get that hard dollar savings. In fact, many of our, the ROI for approving the project have been driven by the savings from the Coop Advantage program. Because it's hard dollars. It's not, forget about automation, visibility, compliance, innovation. We're just going to save you a lot of money right out the gate, right? Or at least give you the option to do so. So yes, and one of the things we're working on, I will tell you, is the, to enable our customers, these guys don't even know about this, to enable our customers to form communities for going out and sourcing with collective buying power their unique goods and services. We just want to be the platform for them to do it. Right? I mean, this, this really has never been done before. Talk about shifting the power from the seller to the buyer, right? Why is everyone going out and doing a reverse auction for the same thing? You know, with the same set of categories in the same geographic location. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. If, if, 
It just doesn't make sense. We should be able to offer that. So we're working on things like that. And I'd, I must put a disclaimer. I don't know too much about this. This is law, um, US law, but I'll talk a little bit about South African law. The last aspect you spoke about, I think you might have an issue in South Africa with this. Um, again, from my last experience, when you start to aggregate spin across various organizations and you go and push pricing with a supplier, that sense has dominance in the market and, and there's, I think there's an element in law that talks about it in South Africa that you, you can't really do that. It hasn't been tested in the court of law yet, but there is an, uh, a, a section in Oh, that. we'll see. It's not only about price. It's, it's, it's not all, it's, the attributes are not always about, we'll see, but it's, the attributes are not always about price, first of all, right? The attributes may be a certain level of quality, certain yeah, ability sure. to deliver on time, yeah, sure. et cetera. Secondly, if there, just as there are anti-monopoly laws where one supplier should, you shouldn't be single sourcing, there should be some level of control that buyers have in terms of who they're working with. So we'll see, we'll see, yeah. we'll see how it plays out. So there's no test, uh, there's, there's no test case in South Africa for that, but I know there's no. anti-competitive law. But in the US, for me, what's interesting is when you do this kind of stuff regarding information and, and data that you have, on, information that you have and you're using it effectively, is there any law that prohibits this or is there anything that's gonna come in place that actually doesn't push this thing to that an extent where it becomes completely a biased market and, and people have the choice of getting the most competitive price in the market. Is there no such thing, no law that will come in in the future? For that well, we've case? had group purchasing organizations for years, right? You play to be a member of an organization where the people have cent centralized buying power to get you know a certain set of preferred suppliers. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we're just helping streamline that and put some meat to it rather than just be some contract. And by the way, the outcome of these things could be individual contracts for every customer. They just might be the same or they might be the right, the right starting point that are then tweaked. Uh, so no, no, the, the, there's, there's the, the, I mean, this is just business. This is just business and it's good business. Again, the value proposition is very strong. More volume and a lower margin or high margin, low volume. You decide, you're the supplier. I mean, you know, no problem. And, and, and by the way, we have customers that, it's just to be clear, that leverage Coop Advantage but interplay Coop Advantage with their own rates, with Amazon Business, with third-party catalogs. They, they throw up in front of certain divisions or locations, different permutations. They curate the experience for the buyer based on the set of capabilities they have on the back end. But we enable that set of capabilities, uh, which, is, which, is, which has a lot of power to it. The, their challenge has always been getting in front of that buyer because the buyer doesn't want to go. It's a bureaucratic system. I'm going to go outside of it. Now we've, we've enabled it with every possible option and give you the control. So the whole idea is rather than you having a push, we want to flip the model to pull. So you're an empowering agent for those end users. So to, to come full circle to where you were going with what Amazon has done for us as a consumer. I mean, it began with books. Now it's everything, right? So. I'm not just responding to, to the question you've just raised now. I'm, I'm not sure. The, the legal status of in, in South Africa. But certainly, um, government has looked at this. And uh, I was involved in a project with Treasury um, to, 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 to negotiate certain contracts for certain commodities. And I, I remember I was involved in the, in the, in the, in the um, fixed voice commodity. And we saved about, about 600 million. Um, 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 and, and there were a, a whole range of things but just having one eye on all the suppliers that are supplying government, you just see discrepancies there. 
um, the way that contracts are, are, are done, some are on uh, per minute billing, some are on per second billing. So that will give different commercial scales. Um, so I think within communities you can still do it. And, and um, I, I see those opportunities for government. And our government has started doing things like those because uh, money is scarce. You can't just go and spend. You need to save money. So, uh, yeah. I think, uh, Robert, just want to honor your time. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, one last question. You spent a couple of days in South Africa. Um, and I think Mark was alluding to the fact that he felt quite excited about, about what you'd experienced here, yeah, just the, the, the general temperature of the, of the market. How, how do you feel? How's your experience been? I feel like it's very ripe for what we, we do. It's, it seems it's very entrepreneurial, very nice. It reminds me of what it was for us early, first in the United States, then the Midwest, then the Northeast, then the Southeast, South Central, then going into Europe. In France, France is the closest example we keep thinking of here. Our first biggest deals in France and expanding there, and then, and then you know, UK, and then going up to North. So this, this, this. Look, I didn't meet one. Have we met anybody here that any large company that feels like business spend management? We got it nailed. We've got the. Uh, uh, things are. Are you kidding me? Things are great. Yeah. We can see everything. We have the best deals. Our end users are delighted. Our CFO has full transparency. We're compliant in every way. Yeah. Seamless integration of all the ERP systems. What are you guys even doing here? Yeah, yeah. I didn't experience that. <laughs> Strange. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob. We really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming out. Thank you guys uh, for joining us.